John 5, starting in verse 30. Going through the end of the chapter. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father have, has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who, has sent, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and, is, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you. Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's play real quick. Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for the opportunity you've given us to worship you. I pray as we open these scriptures that you use them in our lives and our hearts as we look forward to what you're going to do in 2019. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, you've got some notes that are present there, and one of the things that we usually do while we're here at Trace is we try to say sometimes in a sentence what the text try to says, or sometimes they try to find a key verse to sums it all up but uh, the sentence that I think best suits what we're going to be discussing today is glorifying God by knowing believing and loving Jesus Christ I think that's the easiest way to say it not to overcomplicate it but we're going to be looking in the book of John and the book of John is a, a great book when you look at the first chapter to last chapter I love the fact that we go through books of the Bible here I ask you during your times of devotion going through books of the Bible because there's going to be things that you pick up and if you just picked a verse from here and a verse from there that you would miss on the whole. And so it's a blessing to go through that. So the book of John can really be cut into two parts if you wanted to. Part one is chapter one uh, leading up to the uh, triumphal entry in chapter 12 and it really deals with the teachings and the words and the miracles of Jesus. And then from the, that moment on 12 through the rest of the book it really deals with the 
the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. But if you took all those things together, at the end of the book, in in John chapter 20, I think, uh, he says these things toward the end. I have written to you, and this is the point of the book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's the whole point. So the whole direction of John is so that you would believe what he has seen. And I love John because he's not somebody who says, you know, I heard this and I think this is a great story or this is really neat, you should think about it. Every time you read John, it's like, I was there. I saw him, that which we held with our hands, that which we saw, that which we heard. So it wasn't some hearsay story that had been passed down to him. It was something his eyes had seen. He had hugged Jesus himself. He had walked with him. He had listened to his voice. And so his whole point was to drive home the fact that everything in John is going to be pointing to, yes, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so that's easy to see as you read verses like that. And interestingly enough, in the Gospel of John, over 40 times he mentions the word witness. So he's constantly trying to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. And so over 40, actually 47 times he used the word witness. The rest of the gospel got about 16. And so you can start to see it start to form that the point is this witness that I'm trying to demonstrate to you through testimony of who Jesus is. And so these things can be seen. If you look at the first, I love how John takes the miracles and he escalates. I don't know if you've ever read book to book from one end to the other, but it starts out with that wedding in Canaan when he's got turning water into wine. Then the next one, he starts to beef things up a little bit. He feeds 5,000. That's a little bit of a jump, isn't it? Yeah. And then he doesn't stop there. Then he walks on water. So you can see the escalation here. He's trying to demonstrate, and many times through the miracles, the writer of the Gospels try to demonstrate things like, well, with the centurion who came to him and said, hey, heal my son. And when he did, it was the first time Jesus had not touched somebody to heal him. So in a way, the Gospel writer is saying that Jesus' words are just as powerful as his touch, isn't it? So there's constantly a demonstration whether he's Lord over water, whether he's Lord over the earth, whether he's Lord over his sin, there's always a message. And then you look at the healings, the miracles. It started out as a young boy that was son that needed to be healed and healed. The next person he heals in the Gospel of John had been an invalid for 38 years. He healed him. And in the last one, I love, because it culminates to the very end. Guess which thing he saves for last in the miracle list? Anybody remember? Anybody know? Think, ever think about it that way? Lazarus. What a capstone, right? If you're going to end on something, raise the dead. I mean, feeding folks is one thing, but this brings it to a whole new level. And by that being the last miracle, the next thing Jesus would do was raise himself from the dead. And what a wonderful way to demonstrate that John is moving through this gospel at a wonderful pace to to demonstrate that he is who he says he is. In John, you have the I am's. You have all those things we also know. You You have the high priestly prayer. But there's always an Old Testament fulfillment 
whether it's direct or indirect, you're going to see books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and Psalms and Isaiah and Micah and Ezekiel. And so he's constantly pulling from the Old Testament saying, hey, he is the one that's going to fulfill these things. But we want to focus our attention on these verses we just read. In chapter 5, this is a discourse. You know, one of the problems that Jesus had run into is he started breaking a few laws. Yeah, he was breaking a law by healing on the Sabbath. Now, he could have healed any day of the week, am I right? He's Jesus. Who's going to tell him what to do? And so he chooses to heal on the Sabbath. Well, this did not sit well with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers and the scribes. And so he goes and they approach him and say, whoa, 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 by what authority? What, what are you doing? And so it's an opportunity for Jesus to talk to them in probably one of the longer discourses in John. And he starts out by saying these things. You know, he speaks to these Pharisees in the first two verses, verse 30 and 31. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes about their accusations, about the law breaking. And he tells them this, that so Jesus uses their courts. He's going to not prove. See, in, in John chapter 8 and in several other places, Jesus says, hey, if I want to heal something, and if my testimony is about me, it's true. But this is the one opportunity. He says, okay, guys, we'll go by your rules. One of the Jewish rituals and laws that there is is that they always said if you've got to have one or more witnesses for something, right? You can't just verbalize yourself, hey, I am this, and then it be true upon your own testimony. Now, Jesus later on said, if I say it's true, then it's true. But he says, okay. For your sake, I want you to know by demonstration of a few witnesses that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of God. And he's trying to demonstrate this, to demonstrate this. But what I love about Jesus during the midst of this is he's never pointing to himself. I love that. He's always pointing to the fact that he wants God to get the glory. And he starts out by saying, I'm not here to do my will, but I'm here to do the will of the Father. Now, if I had fed 5,000 people, walked on water, and raised a dead man, I would think of myself as a bad character. Don't you? Who else can do that? It would be a comparison game for me. I would have said, you know, Pharisees, how many dead people have you raised up lately? Right? That would have been my perception and attitude. But Jesus being better than Matt, and that's a good thing, uh, went a different direction. So this, through this discourse, I love the fact that he's going to see that his submission to the Father's will is present. So the first witness, he says, as he brings these things up, he says, number one, the witness of John the Baptist. He tells them in these verses as he, as he describes chapter 5, and he goes on and says, you sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that uh, testimony I received from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So John, we see in chapter 1, John begins with John the Baptist and says this was a bright and shining lamp, the forerunner, talking about Isaiah, the one that's supposed to come, uh, that one in the wilderness that's going to be that voice. And he demonstrates that he was that bright and shining lamp and for God's purposes and for, uh, for, the, for the Pharisees to see him clearly, he wanted them to know that this was one of the fulfillments of Scripture, that there was going to be a forerunner, that there was going to be this voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And we see that confession early on in John chapter 1. But John explained that he was not the Christ, right? And that he came 
to speak about repentance, but we also see as Jesus crosses the hill, he says these words, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, why this was important was a couple of reasons. One is because the Pharisees weren't always against John. They liked John. In fact, there were times where John's message sounded a lot like theirs. And they were like, yes, we like this, right? Yes, this is good. And he had favor with them, and they came asking him, are you a prophet? Are you Isaiah? Are you Elijah? Who are you? And when they were asking these questions, they wanted to know by what authority, who he was, but they had, at some point, they wouldn't ask that question if they didn't think he was valid. And so, there was credibility with John. Even with the politicians in town, he had credibility. And John points to the Pharisees, says, you believed him, and this is what he said about me. So there's one of your witnesses, John spoke to me in this way, and they believed that John was a prophet sent by God. They quizzed him on how he was one of the prophets of the Old Testament or one of those was going to be the forerunner, and so he was able to speak about that. So we have the witness of, of, of John the Baptist. The second witness he mentions in the text are his miracles themselves. He doesn't stop there, but he says, the works that I am doing are the works of the Father. So the miracles testify by themselves. Jesus' miracles set him apart, just as we've already talked about. Who else raises the dead? Who else can create substance out of nothing, right? I mean, he started with five fish. How did it turn into that many? And so when you look at these things as people who had been lame all their life that couldn't walk, that couldn't do these things, they said, was he born blind because he had sinned? Was it he who sinned or was it his father who sinned? And Jesus said, well, not only can I heal, but guess what else I can do? I can forgive sin. And every movement and every religion is founded by its leader. You can look at the leader and decide whether or not this is something you need to pay attention to. Who else is like Jesus? Because the capstone of you and I that we have in our faith is that Jesus is still what? Alive. All the others are dead. And so what sets us apart is the works of Christ himself. He did these things not so he could brag upon himself. In fact, in many situations, he healed and he said, now don't go tell anybody. Right? So he did not want the publication He didn't want anything to detract from the fact that he was going to pay for the wages of the sins of the world upon his shoulder, die on a cross, three days later, rise from the grave. That's the story, isn't it? The focus wasn't so much the the miracles, but the miracles point to the fact that his teaching and his life transcended anybody who had ever walked the face of the earth. In fact, I call him the hinge of history. Everything before and after hinges on what he did on that cross, and I doubt you'll find another religion can meet up to that level. So his miracles were wonderful. Jesus didn't do them to simply raise appraisal, uh, applause for himself, personal notoriety. He does so in an obedient father, accomplishing the things that God had sent him. In fact, the miracles bear witness that this is the one that I have put my power This is the one that I have put my authority. This is the one that I have sent. And so when we see the miracles take place, God placed those things within Jesus so that he could do them. What a wonderful testimony. So his works are a witness. John is a witness. But he doesn't stop there. He could have stopped there. One or two should be sufficient according to Jewish law. But he goes on and he says this. The witness of God himself. He brings out the hammer, doesn't he? He says, oh yeah, Uh uh-huh. Here's what God said. 
I'm going to use him as my witness. And there's a couple of things, and I mentioned quite a few verses there, but he talks about it and he says, the Pharisees, you have never heard his voice. You have never seen his form. And he points to that fact. But he tells them, and, and the demonstration there is, at the baptism, there was a voice that came. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. Some heard and some saw. So by God's own omission, this is my son in that baptism. That is a wonderful thing. But God not only does that, but I believe that God bears witnesses in the hearts of you and I, doesn't it? Was your heart not moved when you heard the gospel? That time that did it? Not necessarily growing up? But God, through his spirit, touched our own hearts and lives and something inside of us said, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. This is the truth. This is the answer. And you could do and look over this over the history of missions. There are many times missionaries have walked into places, shared the gospel, and the tribe who had never had a Bible, who had never been delivered the gospel said, okay, this is what we've been looking for. We knew there was something, and now we know. And so God testifies within us, doesn't he, that this is his son whom he has sent. But he doesn't stop there, but God witnesses and bears witness by sending and fulfilling the promises through Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? When you and I open the scriptures and we look at these things, we don't do them on our own accord and our own ability, do we? No, not at all. He fulfilled every promise for you and I to have righteousness, did he not? There's nothing that you and I can do to earn extra credit with God. Jesus earned all of it. That's where it consists in. And so when I have Jesus, I have righteousness. And so what a wonderful way to God to demonstrate his witness. And the last witness he mentions is this, is the witness of Scripture. And he says, the Old Testament, and this is why this text is so important to me. He tells the Pharisees and he looks at them, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that they contain eternal life. But it is those very Scriptures that speak about me. And there had they had been all this time because one of the things they held on and believed and they had a saying and it was this, is that as long as you have the law, you have eternal life. That was a Jewish saying. And Jesus disrupts all of that and says all those scriptures you've been reading, all those things you've been studying, all those things you've been according to your life by and demonstrating to everybody else is so important. Those very scriptures from Genesis all the way through to the Psalms all speak about me. What a wonderful text. And so he talks about the scriptures. The Old Testament points to Jesus of Nazareth. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. Either God is a really bad, bad planner or he knew and was setting up a savior. It's one of the two. He gives us the Ten Commandments. Has there ever been a day in your life you've kept all ten? So why would God bring 10? I mean, two. Let's shoot for that, right? If we're gonna live righteously, that should be enough to work with. 10? My mom is here today. I promise you, I have not honored her always. And, and Paul tells us if we miss one part of the law, guess what? We've missed all of it. So God either made a big mistake in 10 commandments or he was demonstrating to us that there's going to be a savior that you're gonna to need to accomplish this righteousness. 
And so all throughout the Old Testament, it points to Jesus where it's the crushing of the heel in Genesis chapter 3. Or these things that come later. All these things take place because it points to him. And you and I live in a world where there are pastors that feel like that they can disregard the Old Testament. That instead of hinging history, they can unhinge history. And the truth is, is you can't. It's like going to a play. Would you ever understand the second act if you hadn't seen the first act? Would you believe, and this is some of Jesus' point, would you believe the second part of the story when you don't believe the first part of the story? If you can't get this, and it doesn't matter what I say, and says, don't worry about me condemning you, Moses is going to condemn you because Moses spoke about me. And so the Old Testament becomes this hinge that we desperately need. The religious leaders sought eternal life by searching out ways they could do this themselves. And they were satisfied with their attempt to keep the law. But as we know, that's not possible. And I love what the old prophets and preachers used to say. No matter what book of the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, no matter where you cut it, it, bloods, it bleeds the blood of Jesus. And I think that is wonderful, and I think that is true. And so as we look into going into new books this year, we're to get to Jesus quickly, aren't we? And so here's a way. I didn't come up with this, but I think it's wonderful. The Old Testament expected Jesus. The Gospels experienced Jesus. The Epistles explain Jesus. And Revelation anticipates Jesus. Isn't that great? I love that. It draws that picture together that it's all about Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelations. So there's his four witnesses, but he doesn't stop there. And he's, he's starting with that defense, but he moves on very quickly. And he says, now I have some news for you. And there's a couple of do nots that he starts to mention. In fact, there's four of the do nots he's mentioned, four reproofs, and he moves on to the attack. He tells them that you don't have his word abiding in you. You don't have it. The Pharisees did not understand God's word and it was not abiding in them. And you would wonder, these are guys that deal with this every day. They know every rule. They know every law. They believe those things that we talked about a second ago. But acquaintance with the law was the goal of Jewish piety, wasn't it? How well do I know it? How well can I do it? Jesus says that I don't condemn you. Those very scriptures which you study and try to do, they condemn you. Because those scriptures say that I am the one that you submit to. But they were submitting to all these things. And think about that for the Pharisees. They had phylacteries with, with verses on their noggins. They had rituals. They had ceremonies, traditions, festivals. But his word had no place in them. I tell you what, I never want Jesus to come to Trace Crossing and says, the word does not abide in you. Even though we meet for services, even though we pray, even though we go through the word, it needs to abide in us, doesn't it? And so we see in that take place, these men were devout and they were attentive to those writings, but they had also missed it. And that is a sad thing. And he moves on from there. He says, not only do you not have God's word abiding in you, you don't believe the one God sent. They rejoiced in this light in a short time in John. But I love what John 5, 32 says, 23, earlier, it says this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father of who sent him. They honored themselves, didn't they? 
They congratulated each other. One of the tragedies that we see in this taking place was they didn't believe in John. One minute, there he's a prophet and they loved him, and the next minute in John, the gospel, kill him. And that's a note to all of us today. There's always going to be people that run with us for a while. But if we continually walk and live in truth, there are people that may be close to us at some point we depart from, or they depart from us. It's not to be shocked for those that love Jesus, those that walk with Him and live with Him. Those that may, you, there may be people that are only there for a little while. And it isn't because they love you. It isn't because they love Jesus. Like the Pharisees, it's because your message also matches their message at the moment. And be aware that that's a reality in life as we walk through these things. But he moves on and says, not only that, you don't receive me. One of the things about rejecting Jesus is when we turn away from him, we are turning away from eternal salvation, aren't we? That's the inclination in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life, right? And so as we see this, rejection had become this. For the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they listened as he was young and growing up and they may have enjoyed the teaching of Jesus, but as he grew up and so all these things take place, to receive him was something they couldn't do. And what Jesus so desperately tried to get them to understand, like Nicodemus, is you've got to be born again. To receive Jesus, you've got to be born again. There's no way around it. And there's a leaving that's involved with that, and we'll speak about that in a moment. And the last one he says, and I saved it for last, that was one of the proofs of Jesus was this. You do not have the love of God in you. Now, of all the things I never want said to me, that is high on the list, isn't it? I would hate for Jesus to walk up to me and say, Matt, you don't have the love of God in you. What an indictment. I don't think you can go lower, can you? I think that's pretty much the bottom. He called him a brood of vipers, John the Baptist did. Jesus called him whitewashed tombs. I could take all of that. But to tell me that I have no love for God in my heart, that's the dagger that stings so deeply. And we see Jesus' woe to them. He says, you don't love God. You love the highest seats in the synagogue. You love the appraisal and the approval of man in the marketplace. You do all these things publicly. You pray and walk around like you hadn't eaten in days and you eat like a pig when you get to the house. He always had these things toward them. They loved themselves, self-denial, and surrendering their life was not anything in their life as far as a theme in pointing to God. And think of all the words that he spoke to them. Is it possible for us to be devout and to be attentive and to not have the love of God in our heart, to neglect justice and to neglect the love of God? Those were four proofs. Now, I would feel beat up. Wouldn't you love that sermon from Jesus? <laughs> I would have been wiped out at that point and said, okay, Let's just move on. I've, I've, enough has been done. But there's a couple things I want us to get out of this this morning, out of these several things. One is this, is when someone rejects Jesus, they are rejecting God himself. You can't separate them. John 10, 30, and all the I am's, he says that I am, and later on he tells an I am, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through whom? Right. So there's no other relationship. I can't circumvent Jesus and get to God. There's not an alternate route. 
I can't love God and not love Jesus. Now, we live sometimes, even in this city, that's supposed to be a Bible belt where people will say, well, I'm spiritual and I want to love God and I want to do good, but you know, this Jesus Christian thing, mm -mm, it's not for me. But according to this very thing, that doesn't work, does it? By God's own testimony, God sent his son so that we may be saved, not so that we may have an option. There is no other plan, is there? Absolutely not. And so we see that people want to be spiritual. They want to love God, but they deny Jesus. And Jesus tells them plainly in Matthew, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. Now there's a point. But he goes on and says, when, we, when they saw the miracles, and what baffles me about this is when they deny Jesus, they deny the Father. And when they saw these miracles, instead of responding to it, they objected to it. Doesn't that baffle you? I mean, how many people walk on water where you say, you know, there's something special about this guy? Right? There's something here. But ultimately, they could not come to terms with Jesus. And because of that, they never got to come to terms with God. So the only way I'm ever going to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. I think that's obvious. Another point I want to bring up is this. When someone rejects Jesus, they reject all of the scriptures. And so when I walk away from Jesus, Jesus submitted, he obeyed and fulfilled the scriptures. Now you and I, sometimes even when we look in 1 Timothy, we can see people that will take God's word and they will do the endless genealogies and the pointless arguments and the myths and the speculations. There's even code breakers. I don't know what they're breaking, but there's some code somewhere. But in all these things, what misses me is that now there's these armchair theologians. That's what I call them. It's probably not the best title. But an armchair theologian is somebody who is so versed in one subject, right? They know every dot, every point, every date, every person, but they cannot live and walk by faith every day. My advice is don't be an armchair theologian. Don't get lost in myths and, and all the things. And there's a lot of talk, and there's always going to be a lot of things written about a lot of different things. But the point of what I'm trying to make is here is when you spend time in those things, you're not spending time at the master's feet. When I'm more excited about what's being published by the authors I love than I am Jesus, then I got a problem. I don't need eight copies of different theologies. I need Jesus. And I hate that we live in a time and a place where people get more excited in a church than all these other things than being blown away by the fact that the Son of God saved them. There's so many people that have got being, they've gotten over being saved. Have you gotten over being saved? I hope not. I hope every morning you wake up, you are a sinner that's received mercy and grace that you didn't deserve. So it's going to be a good day no matter what happens. I need a Savior every day. I don't need another publication. And so I don't want us to get lost in that because the fact is, if I don't believe the beginning like I mentioned, I want to always end up at the majesty and the splendor of Jesus Christ. No matter what text I'm reading, no matter what book of the Bible I'm going through, I want to believe and know that the Father planned it and he planned it through his Son. And I don't want to be somebody who just talks. I want to be someone. I want to be someone that reads those texts, that reads those scriptures and says, thank you, Jesus. What a Savior.
That's my point. So another thing I want to take away is I cannot seek the glory of God while I seek the glory from one another. I can't love and praise and receive love and praise from men and have the love of God in my heart. God displayed his glory in Christ, didn't he? And who's going to beat that? We, you know, so many people work so diligently to gain the approval of everybody else, don't they? That's what the Pharisees did. As long as they look good in front of everybody else, everything else. And here's the thing about that. They were seeking honor from one another. Do you think they were handing out participation and approval trophies? They weren't patting anybody on the back. It was, look at me, right? It was walking in pride. I am holy. Watch me. I'm going I'm to have the zeal and the fervor for the law that nobody else in this city has. Paul, basically. So it wasn't like they were handing applause out saying, wonderful, y'all did a great job. It was about them, wasn't it? It was about seeking their own glory because they felt like they had lived the law then they were holy. If they had done all these things and sought the approval of everybody else, it was going to work. But the fact is, as you and I know, that everybody has their day, don't they? You know what that day is? It's called death. And all those applause you received and all those words from all those individuals you saw, guess what they're going to do too? Die. And all those words die with them. And so what I've learned is the words of men are temporal, aren't they? But tell me how long the word of God is. So which one you want? Which one do you want to bank your life on? What everybody thinks about you, how you look in front of everybody, the approval of men, or are you more concerned about the approval of God? Because that's the only thing that eternal is. Why am I going to put so much into those things? And so that's a frustrating thing, I believe, that the Lord looks at and says, why are you going to them? They could mourn publicly. You know, they could do all these things. The more public, the better. But behind closed doors, Jesus even elaborated on their life. And behind closed doors, they were different. They received glory and praise from each other. No one can give you righteousness. I want you to know that. Nobody. Righteousness is only found in Christ. And that's the place that we must go. So the only way for me to truly glorify God and seek his glory is not to look for your words and your approval and your applause, but to please the one who sent Jesus. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. They wanted to exalt themselves and seek the approval of others. Another warning that we have here is kind of this. I cannot set my hope on Christ and my hope in my work and others. We all believe in something. We testify about what we hold near and dear to our hearts. Jesus testified, obviously, to God. And Moses testified to Jesus. I believe that I believe in whatever I set my hope on. That's what I do, isn't it? Yeah, we all do that. Sometimes we like to have control or am I the only one? No? No one here tries to control their situations in life. Seriously. Y'all are fantastic. Doing much better than me. You know what we're doing when we're putting controls on everything? Here's what we're saying. Lord, I don't think you could do it. And here's the worst confession than that when I'm in control of everything in my life or some parts. I don't believe whatever you do is for my good. Be careful about how you perceive your life. Be careful how you perceive things. 
Because one of the things I need you to understand is we have to learn more and more in our walk how to set our hope more on Jesus. Less on what I can do and accomplish myself. Sometimes I think I'm pretty good at something. I know you do too. Not me, but yourself. But if you're trusting in you and you're setting your hope in you, you will fail you. You can't even keep your own rules. There's no way that I could live and do what Jesus asked me to do and set my hope on Christ while I try to set my hope on me or on others. And that's one of those warnings that we give. There's a reason to what we do daily, and I hope those reasons are is because we believe that Jesus is going to be that very one who's going to bring things to pass. And the ultimate example for us today is me and Natalie. You know, for a long time we wondered with Nate what was the outcome, what was it going to be like. We didn't know what his capacity was going to be, and so we just prayed. But we know what we did. We set our hopes on Jesus. Because that's only something Jesus can do. And we said, Lord, by faith, we're going to walk and believe that you know what's best for Nate. We're going to, by faith, believe and trust that you can do what we can. I set my hope on Christ. And today I got to celebrate that. That, that wasn't me. I didn't produce that in him. So when we set our hope on Jesus, you give him something to work with. So here's the application real quick. I did pretty good on time today. Take that. Y'all all mentioned to him, say, listen, when he gets back, say, it was wonderful and short. <laughs> but here's three things I want us to pull away because I know we're in a, in, a, in a wonderful season. I know wonderful isn't the word that we always describe, but here's, here's the reality, three things. Everybody turn to John 20. Here's what happens when you read whole books of the Bible. There were three Encounters Jesus had after his resurrection. I want to make sure all three are in your life. They, co- they coincide with the text that we read today. The first Jesus, uh, encounter Jesus had past the resurrection was with Mary Magdalene. Remember her? And I love her response, and I want her response to be your response out of the book of John. Mary Magdalene went and announced in verse 18 to the disciples... I have seen the Lord. Isn't that great? I have seen the Lord. And that demonstrations, and he said these things and the things that he had said to her. So number one is this. I want you to know. I want you to know and be able to say that, see, say, see that same thing. I can't seek God until I seek Jesus. To, know Jesus. to not know Jesus, obviously to not know God. One of the things I want us to pull from this is this. Is, as I mentioned before, I don't want to get more excited about my favorite authors and what, about what they're putting out than what Jesus is doing in the church, what he's doing in children, what he's doing in marriages, what he's doing in lives. I want always to see those things. I want to see. I want to be able to say the same thing as Mary Magdalene said. I don't want to thirst for drops of those, of those that we follow on apps. I want my thirst to be quenched by the eternal fountain, Jesus Christ. I don't want my crumbs to be the things I pick up online. I want my bread to be 
where I'm satisfied and he is my portion and Jesus is the point for which I live. I want to know him. I want to be like Paul. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowships of his suffering. I want to be able to say, I have seen Jesus in that same way. And so as we see that, I want to encounter Jesus like the men on the road to Emmaus. Jesus says he opened up the scriptures starting at the very beginning and explained them. If you're going to have anybody teach you about the Old Testament, I think Jesus is the best candidate concerning himself. And as they left, here's what they said. Did not our hearts burn when he opened the scriptures? That's what we need, isn't it? I want my heart to burn when I open those scriptures. So what I want you to do is this. I want you to pray that God gives you the grace to desire, to relish, to enjoy, to deep drinkly, deep, I can't even talk, deep, drink deeply, there we go, of Jesus Christ. I want to know him. Do you know? Is that where we're set today? And the second thing, the next uh, interaction was with Thomas after the resurrection. And he touched the hands, and here's what he says. And, and I think it's in verse uh, 28. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, said, my Lord, my God. What a wonderful, what a, that's fantastic. He, from that moment on, honored the Lord with his life. And so the second thing I want us to see is believe. I want you to honor Jesus, not you. Not anything else. Put him at the forefront. You void your accomplishments when you come to Jesus Christ. You look at all the things and you consider them rubbish. You turn from your old life. The image of being born again is that which was is dead and now which is new has what? Come alive, right? And so when we honor God, when we do these things, when I say I believe, when I say I receive, what I'm saying is I'm dying to the old me. And I don't die just one day when I walk down the aisle. I die every day I wake up. And I want each of us to get to the point where we can do that, where we can turn these things. And I don't want to walk and live in, in fear and dread. And I don't want to walk and live in fear and pride. Because a little bit of pride will ruin simple gospel truths, won't it? I'm so tired of reading and looking at guys that take the most simplest things that are wonderful that children can understand and make them as complicated and Everest that we can't cross. Why? I've heard it said this way, and I hope that you forgive me for saying this. An idiot can make the simple complex. If you've got to jump 17 hurdles to get to Jesus, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that ain't it. If you believe if you can give up yourself if you can turn yourself and be that born again image that we see I don't have eternal life because I think highly of me or think highly of Jesus I have eternal life because Jesus died for me that's the joy isn't it and so as we see that I don't want to just be able to say I have seen the Lord but I also want to say my Lord my God I want to believe deeply. And so I ask you to do this. Not only to pray for God to give you grace to, deep, to drink deeply, but can you surrender you to Jesus? Can you seek to honor him? Can you seek 
him above everything else and let go of all earthly standards and let him determine for you what life is supposed to be like. And the last thing I'll end with is this. Favorite words in a sermon. Oh, come on, that didn't get any laughter. The last instance, and again, so many times it, it gets up to this point where Jesus had after, it's found in chapter 21 toward the end of the book. Jesus with Peter, and he says this, Peter, do you love me? And he said to them, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So I want us to be able to say, I've seen the Lord, my Lord, my God. And then I want to say, you know I love you. Those three things. They tie in with what we talked about today. I can't love God without loving Jesus. And how do I love Jesus? By loving all the things that he loved, right? And one of the things he always added on and tacked on is not only love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, but also, what was the other one? love your neighbor yeah one of the greatest ways and I believe this most of the time Jesus when he talked about loving and doing it right he also mentioned others didn't he wasn't far behind usually that's the truth and I mention that because right now we're in a season is what we're going to call it okay and in this season we have lots of question marks right now we don't have a pastor but does that mean I can't say that I have seen the Lord does that mean I can't say, my Lord, my God? And why doesn't that mean that we still can't serve one another and love him more passionately than anything else? In fact, I believe that's about the greatest gift you can give a new pastor, isn't it? People that love Jesus that serve one another. And so here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. If you call or you text or you group me, whatever you do on your fangled contraptions, if you do it two or three times, would you do something for me? While we're in this season, would you do it four or five? Would you not just come in these doors? Would you find something to do? Would you connect with people? Let's let 2019 be focused on Jesus Christ. Not on what we don't have, but what He has given us. I want us all to say, I've seen Him, my Lord, my God, and you know I love you. And I believe if we see that and look at that all across John, we'll get to a place where we can honor him. And like we mentioned in the first sentence, if you want to know how to glory and give God glory, glorify him by knowing, believing, and loving Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We know this text is from you. It's not from us. And I pray for us as a congregation that we love you, that we serve one another, that we look for you and know you and not everything else. And I pray that we believe more deeply than we've ever believed that you are the answer. So in all of these things, God, we're just asking you to do the work in our hearts that we can't do. Do in our church the things that we can't do. And I promise you this, when we look with majesty and splendor like those disciples moment after moment, I think about it's calming the storm. I want my reaction to Jesus to be the disciples' reaction. Who is this man that the winds and the waves obey him? I want that position all year long.
And I want to love you more deeply. Father, I want to serve you more lovingly. And I don't want to just do those in word, but I want to do them in deed. We thank you. And we look forward by faith for the things that you're going to do 